a lot of the the circles or the, the even the friends, just close friends that I was talking to within the church. Uh, I didn't even know what Reformed was the first time I went to a Ligonier conference. Um, but, you know, as I'm having these conversations with friends and I'm hearing things and, and looking at the church and, and worship and questioning those things, um, it, as... As I'm sitting there listening to the teaching of the word, I can remember the first time thinking, I'm not alone. There's somebody out there that actually thinks the same way that I do because I really felt like an outcast often. I felt like an outcast for even questioning, you know, worship practices at all. Um, But then when I began to hear that other people were at least thinking and saying some of the same things that I was, I didn't feel so weird and strange and unusual anymore and then it kind of went from there to going to the the together for the gospel conference and that really struck a chord with me as it relates to music um just it's unreal to listen uh to five six thousand and no offense ladies but male voices just feel this room in singing praises to God. It was just overwhelming to me. I'd never really heard anything like that. Um, and it wasn't just the voices, it was the choice of songs, too, that was like, this is not, you know, we do some things like this where I was at, but not much, you know. Contemporary Christian music was kind of the thing. And um, so, again, a lot of these songs that were. At T4G, those were things that I was hearing for the first time. May have heard some of them before, but not very many of them. And so all this kind of new stuff as it relates to doctrine and as it relates to worship and, and through song. Um, and then start moving towards youth ministry. And, you know, that was a challenge because yeah, I had some really smart teenagers. I had some really uh, some smart teenagers who loved music and knew how to, to talk about music, that was, a, that was kind of a, a difficult time, just me wanting to drive things one direction, and the teenagers are, they're kind of another direction with, as it relates to music. And, um, so that, and then transitioning into church planting, and that was fun, because that was the first time that I was really allowed to question what it is that we're doing. And to say, you know, hey, um, how how should we worship? What kind of songs should we should we be singing? And just you know, things like that. Um, and the good news, as far as that's concerned, is there wasn't anybody else in the church. It was me and you know my family and another family. And so we got to explore that and kind of decide, you know, how we're going to do things and. Um, right or wrong it was just a fun process to think through that instead of just what often felt like flippant you know we just kind of show up and we sing and this is what we do it was more thoughtful and uh, it was it was good to be able to to experience that so there's just been a lot of stuff that's been going on in my life over the last few years and uh, to be honest I've I've led music at um, Daniel's Bible Church many times uh, when I was the youth pastor there and, you know, every week with the teenagers and and I liked doing it. But if you would have asked me, you know, probably even a year ago, if I would do it every Sunday, I probably would have said no. Um, but again, just in thinking about this um, idea of worship and what worship is, um, music was one area that I was just really interested in. As, as I be, began to explore this. And so that just happens to be where I'm at. Um, but we're not going to talk solely about music. Today it's more of a, a theology of worship, I guess we'll call it. What is worship exactly? So we've got a couple definitions that I'm going to read to you. One is good old Webster. It's always good to see what old Webster says, right? Um, the definition there is to honor or reverence as a divine being or supernatural power, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. It's not too bad. Pretty good, actually. And then this next one is from the New Bible Dictionary. 
It says worship, or in the Old English, it's worth sight, I guess is how you say that, something like that. Um, or worship, originally referred to the action of human beings in expressing homage to, uh, that is to give respect or honor or reverence to God because he is worthy of it. It covers such activities as adoration, thanksgiving, prayers of all kinds, um, the offering of sacrifices, and the making of vows. Nowadays, however, worship is used for any kind of an interaction between God and his people expressed in but not confined to cultic or formal activity by a religious group or individuals. It therefore includes not only the human approach to God, but also the communications of God with his people and the whole communal activity that takes place when the people gather together religiously. Such activity is the formal expression of spiritual attitudes which should characterize God's people at all times. Insofar as serving other people is a divine command, the fulfillment of it is a part of worship. And I want you to just really pay attention to this last part. The term worship is misunderstood if it gives the impression that the major element is what human beings do or offer to God. Biblical religion is primarily concerned with what God does for his people. This is particularly evident in the New Testament where words expressing human activity or worshiping God are surprisingly rare in descriptions of church meetings. Worship is the human response to a gracious God and it needs to be placed in this context if it is to be properly understood. So just a couple things to kind of draw your attention to. Um, I like that it points out that obedience is, is worship. You know, again, we think it's very easy for us to get caught up in the music, and we call that worship, and the guy who's doing it is the worship leader. And often that's, on a Sunday morning, that is where you actually hear the word worship the most as it relates to the music. But there's so much more going on and everything that's taking place here is worship. The way that we interact with one another is worship. If God tells us to love one another and submit to one another and honor one another, the way that we interact here on Sunday morning is worship. And so, again, it goes back to what, what that definition said. The divine command, or insofar as serving other people even, is a divine command. The fulfillment of it is a part of worship. So all that we're doing here when we gather together is worship. But not just here. It takes place in our individual lives and in our homes. Um, the way that we interact and respond to who God is and what God has done is worship. Uh, it says that worship is the human response to a gracious God. So we're responding to who God is and it said that biblical religion is, the, is primarily concerned with what God does for his people. And I would add to that that biblical religion is primarily concerned with who God is and what God has done for his people. Not just what he's done. It's also about who God is. So these two things, I feel, uh, drive or influence why worshiping God uh, or worship, they drive or influence why we worship God and how we worship God. So the question is, how do we know who God is and what God has done? Well, obvious thing is we look to Scripture. So that's basically our point for tonight and the thing that we'll focus on the most, that worship is first biblically informed. Worship is first biblically informed. So worship begins with the Bible. And thinking rightly about all things concerning God. That seems like a no-brainer. But in practice, it's usually not, sadly. Um, a biblical view of worship begins with what is true about God. John four twenty-three through 24 says that, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
So true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. If God is spirit, then we must worship him in spirit. The realm of worship isn't just this external thing. It is external, but it's also an internal, a spiritual thing that we do. It's not over here on the the mountain, as the Samaritan woman pointed out, or in the temple, as the Jews did, um, as their their traditions and their ceremonies uh, took place. God is spirit, and he is not bound by space or time. Worshiping him takes, is to take place now in all places and in all circumstances. And I think that's another thing that we often miss out on. It's all circumstances um, that we worship God in, the good times and the bad times. And all this is possible because through Christ, the spirit of God has invaded the hearts of those that he calls true worshipers. So through Christ, Jew and Gentile now have access <clears throat> to the presence of God, and therefore they now have access to the truth about God, and they have a new desire to worship him according to that truth. So to worship in spirit and truth is to worship through the spirit of God and the new life that he's granted to us because of our faith in Christ. He's given us the new heart and he's given us new desires. He's given us new access to God that leads us to love what is true. Um, If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36... And let's see, we'll um, go to verse 16. This is one of my uh, favorite passages of Scripture. Just, I, I love this. Uh, so, Ezekiel 36 16. We're going to read quite a bit here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the, the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I, uh, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they had came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate the holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. And give you a heart of flesh, excuse me. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I will give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain to make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And we'll just, we'll stop there. Um, So here you have God taking or saying that he is going to take 
idolaters and turn them into worshipers. Um, you have this. You have Israel, who he's saying has profaned his name among the nations. And when we think about what worship is, to worship God is to exalt Him. Um, it's to give Him reverence. It's to give worth to God where worth is due, and primarily because He is God. But yet here they did the opposite of that. They profaned His name. It's easy for us to hear that word profane and think of profanities and you know just vile, vulgar things. But the word here actually means that they made his name common. They didn't glorify his name. They didn't give, um, rather than honor, honoring God as, as holy, they profaned his name everywhere they went. And so he says that I'm about to act. I'm going to do something. And Basically, he's going to change them. He's going to change them from idolaters to worshipers. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. And he is going to cause them to walk in his statutes and to obey his commands. And I think that takes us back to what, um, what it means to be uh, a true worshiper who worships in spirit and truth. It's God who has given us this new spirit, this new heart that... He causes us, and not in a sense that he is making us do these things um, or, you know, controlling us like puppets, uh, but the fact that he's transformed us, it gives us these new desires to do the things that he has commanded us to do. Whereas, apart from the Spirit of God, we desire to do what we want to do. And so he's changed us and made us into these worshipers and people who love what is true. Now if you um, if you remember from our definition the term worship is misunderstood if it gives the impression that the major element is what human beings do or offer God. Now what we do or offer God is certainly an element of what worship is but it's not the major element because the starting point is God. And what is true about who God is and what God has done. Lots of people claim to do things in the name of worship. Um, But not everything that is called worship is true worship. Mark 7, 6 through 8. And he said to them, uh, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written... This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold the traditions of men. Jesus is responding to some Pharisees who were questioning him about his disciples and them not keeping the tradition of washing their hands before they ate. And so he basically says to them, You think you're worshiping God by keeping your traditions, but God spoke of people like you through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, your talk of God sounds good. You honor me with your lips, and they probably did it with good intentions. But God says that he doesn't have their hearts. I don't have your hearts because you set out to worship me your way, and to make things worse, you lead others to do the same by teaching the commandments and the traditions of men as if it is doctrine. And he says that you leave what I have commanded, or that word uh, in the Greek is the same one for divorce. You leave or you omit or you divorce yourself from what I have commanded you to do. God says that their worship is in vain. It's, it's worthless and fruitless. It's worship that leads nowhere. So not everything that is called worship is worship. Nor is it acceptable and pleasing to God just because we think or we say it is. Um, So as Christ's followers, we have what these Pharisees and the Samaritan woman didn't have. At least we didn't have at the time that Jesus was addressing them. Um, We have access to God. We worship in spirit. And on the basis of Christ's merit alone, we are acceptable to God. So we can worship God however we want, right? Well, no, not exactly. It's, it's somewhat yes and somewhat no. 
yes, we do have unlimited access to God. Yes, we are pleasing to God solely on the basis of what Christ has done, even when we sin, um, even when we probably blow it a lot when it comes to this worship stuff. God still looks at us and he sees Christ in us and he is pleased. But there is still a practical side to worship. There are still things that God asks us to do um, in the Bible that is worship. Um, There's issues of obedience. And there's the issue of our joy and our satisfaction in our relationship with God that can be affected when we don't worship God rightly. And that is where I believe the truth of worship comes in. So I was kind of thinking about it like this as in my relationship with my son. I love my son, and I will always love my son. Um, sometimes I ask him to do things a certain way. And this is true of my, my daughters, too. I ask them to do things a certain way, and with good intentions, he does it, but he doesn't necessarily do it the way that I've asked him to do it. It does get done, um, but all through the process, and you've probably noticed this too if you have kids, there's grumbling and there's complaining and there's frustration and there's aggravation that is, that is going on as they complete this task that you've asked them to do. And um, although he got it done, he got it done the hard way. It was more emotionally exhausting uh, in the end, and he was frustrated and unsatisfied. And he was also disappointed in me because I, even, I asked him to do it in the first place. But what he didn't know is, had he had listened to me, not only would he had had pleased me with his obedience, the end result would have been easier, and it would have been more satisfying, because I know what's best for my son, and maybe that particular project I've done a thousand times, and I know the easiest way for him to accomplish it, and I encourage him to do it that way, because I want him to have the enjoyment of doing it, not the frustration behind it. Um... So it would have been easier for him, and it would have been more satisfying. Now, his position with me didn't change, even though he didn't do things the way that I asked him to do it. He's still my son, and I still love him. But his joy and our relationship was probably certainly impacted in one way or the other. Psalm 1611 says that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God here, he's the one, it says, that makes known the path of life, the path of life that leads to our salvation and the abundant life of joy that God desires for us. And we can certainly try to make our own paths. We can do things our own way. You know, when we think about this worship, it's, it's almost like... Um, you're breaking some kind of crime if you try to define it for people within the church today. Um, so we can, we can kind of chart our own course and we can do things this way and we can do things that way. And it may seem good and it may seem fulfilling for a while, but it won't last. And it, in many cases, is not even considered worship. And so it's important that, um, that we do look to Scripture. We look to what is true in order to determine how it is that we are supposed to worship God. There is a right way. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that every single way is lined out in Scripture, that you do this in every circumstance. We know that. But one thing that blows my mind about some of the arguments and debates that I've seen amongst Christians, uh, not even on the topic of worship, just anything, is that we sit around and we often argue about all these things that we want to do or we ought, feel we ought to do, and yet the scripture is full of things that is blatantly clear that we should be doing. I can remember, and this is a bit of a touchy subject, I know, but we, there was a, this huge debate at one point in circles that I was in about women's role in ministry. And, you know, it's, you almost get this fist shaking at you like, who dare you? Or how dare you? Who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? And I said, okay, listen. This was a real conversation that I had. I'm going to just step back for a moment and I'm going to agree with you. Who am I to tell you what you can or cannot do 
as it, as it relates to women teaching or your role within the church? I don't know. And maybe there's a million other things that, that you can be doing that we need to discuss and talk about. But it's, what I don't understand is when the Bible is so clear about so many things that you can do and should be doing, until you exhaust yourself of that, maybe we shouldn't even be having these conversations. Now, that didn't really go over too well. But my point is, as it re- it's the same thing, I think, when, we, when it relates to worship. We talk about worshiping this way and doing this, and maybe we should, you know, just all the things. Um, but the Bible is so clear on things that we should be doing, and let's exhaust ourselves in doing that first. Uh, and we may see that we probably wasted our time even thinking about all those other things in the first place, because I believe that there is joy to be had in doing things God's way, and we often miss out on that joy because we're so caught up and doing what we feel is going to make us happy and bring us joy. And in the end, again, it doesn't last. So how do we worship uh, in truth? I think I accidentally hit my iPad and jumped ahead of myself here. Yeah, I did. All right, back on track. I think sometimes as Christians, we tend to uh, translate worship, uh, worshiping in the spirit as, as this uh, spiritual, and it is, but not so much spiritual, but more mystical thing, using uh, words because it, uh, I think that when we are when we play with our words so much, it ends up not being very helpful in the end, and we open the door to how we want to worship or what makes us feel like we're worshiping. Um, it takes worship, and it makes it more about our emotions and our opinions and what we feel rather than responding to God based on what is true and allowing that alone to be enough to satisfy our desires to worship. So now, how do we worship in truth? Well, let's look at some scripture. Psalm 40, um, verses 6 through 8. And then we're also going to look at Romans 12, 1 through 2. Psalm 40, 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is written within my heart. And then Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So a few things that we can learn from these passages about worshiping in truth. So there's a way of worshiping God that brings um, both him and us delight, a way that he requires, a way that is holy and good and acceptable and pleasing to him. And it's for our good as well. So what type of worship does not delight the Lord? Well, worship that is out of duty and not delight. Worship that begins with, I ought to do this, or this is how I ought, it ought to be done, or I feel that it should be done this way or that way, or even out of obligation rather than obedience to what is true. Worship that pleases God begins... In the life of a person that has been transformed by the word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We read in Romans there. And that transformation changes our desires by taking the focus from ourselves and what we think that we ought to do. And it places all the attention on God and who he is and what he has done. And then we respond by saying, God, I give you my life. 
because I, not because I ought to or because today I feel like it, but because I want to. How could I do anything else? Look at what you have done. So, if we were to go back to the previous verses of Psalm 40, David says in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie? You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. No one can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Truth about who God is and what God has done is what motivated David to say the things here that, that he said. And, and I think he's ultimately saying some of the same things that we're seeing here in Romans. I give uh, my body as a living sacrifice. Now, he doesn't use those words exactly, um, but he's expressing that that is, that is what his desire is to do, is to, um, if, you go, if you go back to verse, um, verses 6 through 8, he says, I've given, you've given me an ear. And I think it's the Septuagint that is translated that a body you have prepared for me is how, how that is worded there. Um, and behold, I come in your scroll of the book it is written, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And so he has this seeming desire to give his life to God. And if you look through verses 1 through 5, he doesn't seem to almost have a whole lot of reason to say my life is yours. But because there's a, there's a lot of pain there. But in the midst of the pain and the trials, and we see this a lot with David in the Psalms, um, he expresses those things that my life is yours. And he does that by looking at who God is, the truth of who God is, and the truth of how God works and what he has done in his life, he doesn't rest on the circumstances and the difficulties and throw his hands up in the air. He worships God and says, but I know who you are and my life is yours. It seems to me that he could have allowed his emotions or his personal desires to get in the way of his worship. And we know that he had issues that he struggled with but God heard his cries, he says. Um, David, he saw himself even in the pit of destruction. But the truth about God led him to view his circumstances with a renewed mind. And the result was a surrendered life and worship. He was thinking rightly about his circumstances in light of what he knew about God. And so he didn't allow his emotions to get in the way or to dictate how he felt or whether he even worshipped at all, he rested in and was comforted by the truth of who God is and what God has done in his life. And the emotion is there for sure, but it's rooted in what was true more than what he was feeling. Um, God's way is always better and more satisfying. One definition that we're going to spend some time unpacking as we kind of move forward through this, we're not going to get into a lot of it today, but it's from a series called Worship Matters by Bob Coughlin. And it reads that biblical or Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, again, we won't deal with all of it now, but we, I want to draw your attention to that in, in our minds. Coughlin says that worship involves thinking before feelings, truth before experience or, or feelings or emotions or even our circumstances. Uh, truth is always true, and emotions and experiences and feelings and circumstances, they always change, and although they can be true, they're often not. 
And so we always want to fall back on what is true and being and, and living out of these transformed lives and renewed minds. Worship involves thinking before feelings. Uh, he goes on to say that it's that um, worshiping God with our minds is meditating on, reflecting on, processing, evaluating, and understanding what God has revealed to us of himself. And I was just thinking about Psalm 40 and Romans 12, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give you Jason's translation of the two of those combined together, because I just, it was helpful to me to think through it like this, and maybe it's helpful to you and maybe not. Um, so this is my combination of Psalm 40 and Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds. In the scroll of your book it is written of me. You have told me how to discern your will, what is good and acceptable and perfect in your sight. I can know how to please you and how to worship you rightly. You, O Lord, do not delight in dead sacrifices. You have given me an open ear. I hear you speaking through your word, and I delight to worship you according to your will. And by the mercies of God, I can offer you my body, my life, as a living sacrifice. O my God, your law is written on my heart. So it's very easy for us, I think, to fall into the trap of turning worship into an emotionally driven experience um, that has to be done a specific way or in a specific place at a specific time, and it has to invoke certain feelings with some planned moments of spontaneity in there because you don't want to forget the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, And I used to think that that was okay. And again, I, I mentioned that before. Don't judge. It's just, you know, it's different, but it's sincere. And maybe on some level, I, believe, I do believe that's true. Um, I do believe that people in churches who think that way do have good intentions. But I've often thought over the years, what happens when you strip this experience down and all that is left is the Word of God? And my thoughts are that if you don't keep up the emotional experience for people who have been conditioned to think this way and have been conditioned to think that this is what worship is supposed to feel like, they begin to feel that it's dead. Even when the Word of God is present, they still feel it's dead because the experience and the emotion isn't there like they feel that it should be. And God's Word in those situations will never be enough. So your choice is to keep the experiences coming or, you know, by quantity or keep amping them up in some way to make them more uh, exciting or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, this is, this is the way the world thinks, really, when you think about it. More is always better. There's never enough to satisfy And so we always keep pursuing more and more, and there's never enough. And it seems often in our churches, that's what we do with the stuff that we call worship. Um, It's sad to me that we do this stuff with our music, and it's even with how we present the gospel. Uh, There's a tendency to appeal to the emotions of people in both of these areas because we know that by doing that, we can easily get a response out of them. And, you know, we feel like we've accomplished something when we get that response. But guys, and I want to be careful here, often it's not real. Um, There are rare exceptions, but in most cases, from what I've seen in the church, it leads to a lot of people who haven't really been transformed by truth. The Bible says that the truth will set you free and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus himself tells us, uh, he says that for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
And it seems that it only makes sense that our worship would be driven by what is true. Worship is biblically informed first. Um, But remember from Romans, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Worship is not about you. It's not about your experience. It's about God, and it's about God's word. He's spoken about himself and, and what he desires. John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the life of worship, that you know God and worship him as he has revealed himself, and namely through the person and life of Jesus Christ. Now, how often do we talk about eternal life as being living forever? But Jesus himself says, no, it's knowing God. So truth, knowing, like this, this is a, an important thing. God's word matters, and God's word is enough, and it's enough to satisfy all of our joy and our desires and everything that we um, feel like we need in worship. It's there. Um, you can... <clears throat> so we seek to know God and worship him in truth, and again, through the person and life of Jesus Christ. You can't experience what you first do not know and know rightly. And in Acts 17, 22 through 34, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their in the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. Okay, sorry guys. This is the problem of technology. One wrong tap. <laughs> it's gone, there we go. All right, so having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and uh, Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Now if you notice here, Paul, uh, his response wasn't to use the gospel to appeal to their emotions. He dealt with their wrong thinking and the worshiping of a God that they didn't know, as it points out. And he does that by pointing them to what is true about God, pointing them to who he is and what he has done. The good news is when you set out to know and worship God, beginning with his word, we're changed by it. Not only are we changed by it, um, but it it affects our experiences of of God, which are real and should be. Um, I've... I tend to shy away from that word experience and even emotion some because I just see uh, the damage, I think, that it's caused even in my own life and my own thinking and in my family. Um, but 
knowing and experiencing God is something that we should seek to do. But we should seek to do it to do it rightly. Because it's about not ultimately it's about God's glory and God being exalted. But guys, it's also about our joy. Just like, you know, my son can go out and do this task um, and, and not do it the way that I told him to. We can go out and do things our way too and with good intention. But at the end of the day, it will affect our joy and our relationship with God when we don't seek to do things the way that God desires uh, us to do them and seek to know God the way that God desires to be known. So we're going to end there, and I want to stop by kind of giving you a bit of a story about, and this is true, this, and this is, again, one of those things that has challenged me to think about how I uh, think about worship, and not just worship in this particular case. At the time, it was more about the idea of discipleship to me, and I didn't really think much outside of that box, but as I've looked back, this really is a worship thing, too. So when I was the youth pastor at Daniel's Bible Church, in the beginning, we did a lot of the same things that typical youth groups do. We had, you know, the bumping events and the lock-ins. And one of the things that we, we, and I'm talking about Angela and I, that we began to notice right away was we were spending so much time exhausting ourselves putting together these events for these teens that we didn't even get to spend any time with them at all. So a good example is a youth rally. And I'm not opposed to these things. I'm just trying to help you understand uh, this path that I've kind of been on as it relates to this. Um, So the youth rallies, they're often intended to be evangelistic. We have music. We start out with music, and we start out with some guy who comes and gives this gospel presentation And then from there, we go and we have fun all night long. Just play games and drink lots of caffeine. Uh, What's that? Pizza. And eat pizza. Yeah, eat lots of pizza. Pizza and candy and all that other stuff. Um, But, you know, we did, we may have only did, have done one. Actually, no, I take that back. I think we did two. And even though I was the youth pastor, I got out of the first one. And my wife was responsible for it because I think I was sick. But the second one... uh, you know, I was a part of that, and um, we didn't talk to any of the teenagers almost all night long, and it, it really was a great opportunity. You know, we had at that time probably 30 to 40 students in our youth group, and that particular night, we probably had 80 to 100. So there was a good opportunity to engage with some of the teenagers in in our community, but it was we were too busy spinning our wheels putting on this this event. Um, for the teens. And so that was one thing that's like really challenged me to start thinking about just being intentional with the time that we have and thinking about discipling teenagers and um, investing in them in a way that's more personal. And, and so from that, it just kind of led to rethinking about how we did everything within the youth ministry. And so we were really intentional about the events that we did. And we weren't, um, we weren't real shy to say, like, this is an event just for our teens. We just want to hang out with them for the evening. And that's what we did. Uh, so we, be- we became intentional. And-, and part of that was because we were seeing that while our teenagers really wanted to be there, they weren't really growing spiritually very much. And so, you know, how could we invest in them? Well, right about this same time, another youth pastor called me up. And I knew him, and I had uh, probably been in the same building as him, but I'd never really talked to him before. And he, he asked me out to lunch, and we went out to lunch, sat at Bellasino's down in Beaver, and uh, he, he expressed some of the same concerns that I did. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at my teens, and I'm seeing that they're, they just don't have, like there's no fire for God. You know, and they, they don't seem to have this real passion for God. And I said, you know what? I'm seeing the same stuff. So what, what are you thinking? And he said, well, the reason why I'm coming is because I wanted to know if you wanted to kind of partner up and do this youth rally. And, I mean, like, I was really excited until he said youth rally. Because 
I mean, I've already just, I've worked through this in my mind, and it's like, I know where this is going. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to create this emotional experience in order to pump the teens up. It's, it is, uh, it's worship, essentially, for teens. And so we create this emotional experience, get them pumped up with, with great, you know, music, or if you call it that, and, you know, maybe have some preacher or motivational speaker come and talk to them. And then, you know, at the end of the night, they're excited. And I have seen that so many times. And that does happen on some level. So I listened to him, and I was just waiting. I was waiting for my chance to say, and what next? So that's exactly the first thing that came out of my mouth when he was done. And so then what after that? What next? I said, because what I'm noticing is, is that we do these events, and they get excited but it only lasts for a week or two, maybe a month, you know, maybe. And he, well, I've thought about that. He said, what I'd like to do is start doing this every month. And so, you see, it goes back to the point that I made previously. When we try to um, appeal to the emotions of people, we have to continue to appeal to the emotions of people, regardless of what it is and how we do it, whether it's teenagers or whether it's, you know, in a... A congregational meeting on Sunday morning. We have to keep that routine up in order to keep that emotional response going. But if we back up and we begin with worshiping God through His Word and what He has said and done, uh, then I think that it will, I think it radically will change the way that we do things and see things within the church. And so, guys, that's what I got. Worship is biblically informed. It begins with truth and knowing who God is and what God has done first. And so hopefully we can build on that from here on out. All right? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we don't really have to figure this stuff out. You've already figured it out, for lack of a better way of putting it. You've, you've already determined how you want to be known, and how you want to be worshipped. So I pray that you would put within our hearts this overwhelming desire to know that, an overwhelming desire to be obedient to the things that you have said. Um, and let us see that there is real joy and satisfaction to be had in that. It's for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right.